So today's scripture comes from Ruth chapter 3, verse 8 to 10, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. This is the word of God. Ruth chapter 3, as we've read verses 8 to 10, we've been in the book of Ruth for several weeks now. We are going to be here for probably one more week after today. Um, We've read verses 8 to 10, but we're going to be in the whole chapter of Ruth 3 today. A quick recap, if you're just joining us as we are are studying through the book of Ruth, uh, we're we're in chapter 3 today. But chapter 1, the story begins with a man named Elimelech a man from Bethlehem, Elimelech, and Naomi, who is his wife, uh, and their two sons decide to move out of Bethlehem because they hit hard times. There was no food in Bethlehem, so they, they go out to Moab to look for food, and they decide to move their whole family. And while living as uh, foreigners in a foreign land, in a pagan city of Moab, Naomi loses her husband, Elimelech, uh, two sons, uh, marry Moabite women. And then eventually, both sons uh, pass away. We don't know why. We don't know what happened. Leaving Naomi alone with two daughters-in-law. And Naomi decides, hearing being in Moab as a widow in a patriarchal society, she's like, I'm going to return home because I've heard there's food back in Bethlehem. She decides to return home. And she tries to convince her daughters-in-law to remain in Moab, to start a new family, start your life again, release them. But Ruth uh, says, I'm going to follow you. Where you live, I'm going to live. Where you are buried, I'm going to be buried. This commitment to Yahweh, commitment to God. And so Ruth and Naomi, at the end of chapter 1, lands back in Bethlehem, where Naomi is from. And Ruth is now not only a widow, but a foreign widow in the city of Bethlehem. And in chapter 2, a new character uh, arrives to the story. His name is Boaz. And two very important things about this man, Boaz, is he's a worthy man, a man of substance. And two, he is a part of Naomi's family. And, and, and so Boaz and, and Ruth, they have this dramatic meeting, right? This love story. Every love story has this dramatic meeting between two lovers. And things seem great. Boaz show so much kindness and favor. And, and, and Ruth doesn't know how to react, how to respond. And, and really, chapter 2, momentum is great. And the story comes, chapter 2 closed, comes to a close with everyone expecting, well, of course, Boaz is going to ask Ruth to marry Ruth. It only makes sense. Uh, and then we pick up the story from chapter 3. This is where we are. But as we move from chapter 2 to chapter 3 of the book, Harvesting gives way to winnowing process, right? There's several process when you harvest crops. And now it's towards the end of the harvest season. So the author is indicating this is towards the end of harvest season. Many weeks have passed since Boaz and Ruth first met. And the question now that hangs in the air in chapter 3, it shifts from, it shifts from Naomi's predicament and her depression, her bitterness to now, what will happen to Boaz and Ruth? When will, when will they ever get together? Right? That's the story. 
And so starting from verse 1, if you have your Bibles, we'll just walk through the whole chapter. Chapter 3, verse 1. Naomi's attitude completely shifts. Seeing that God may be up to something. For, for the first time in a long time, Naomi has this positive attitude for the first time. From someone who was consumed by her own sense of grief and bitterness to someone who now really joins in what, what God is already doing. So as soon as Ruth shared that she had gleaned from Boaz's field, and Boaz himself has shown great kindness towards Ruth, she can now sense, Naomi can now sense that God may be on the move. Right? Bitterness drives, you, drives people, drives you and I towards inward self-absorption, where forgiveness or even repentance enables you and I and really motivates us to start looking outside of ourselves, start looking at other people and their needs. All of us have experienced some kind of bitterness in our lives. Remember that season of great bitterness? You couldn't really think beyond yourself and your needs? Well, Naomi, there's a shift now because she understands, wow, maybe God has not abandoned me. Maybe God is up to something. So Naomi has a plan. Uh, chapter 2, uh, again, ended with great momentum between Ruth and Boaz, right? Ruth stumbling upon Boaz's field, Boaz a worthy man, someone from the same clan showing great kindness. Yet, starting chapter 3, things have cooled down a little bit. It's not as, like, it's not as like dramatic and sweet. In chapter 3, uh, Boaz, though single and able and worthy and part of the clan, he checks all the boxes. He's the... He's 9 out of 10, right? In, in, in Hebrew standard, 9 out of 10. Has not asked Naomi for Ruth's hand in marriage. The story leading up, the buildup, and the author is pointing us to their wedding, but weeks have passed, and Boaz got gunshot. I don't, I don't know what happened with Boaz. We'll find out what happened. And Naomi is puzzled. Naomi's like, what's going on? And Ruth is probably confused, right? You've been in a relationship or or pre-relationship where you felt like you were attracted to someone and felt like the feelings were mutual. Like someone gets nodding your head, nice, okay? Feeling neutral. And then to find out, well, the feelings are no longer neutral, mutual or they just want to be good friends. We're like, what? We're friends? I've been friend-zoned, right? Um, so, so now Naomi wants to take action. Naomi wants to speed up the process because she sees what, what God may be doing. But, but it is... Um, not easy for a Moabite woman in a city like Bethlehem to find a husband, a, a widow, a foreign widow, a foreign widow without any son or possession. It's really hard. The context is in Numbers 25, in Old Testament book, Numbers 25. Moabite women had led the Israelites' men into sexual immorality and idolatry. Uh, so even, it's, 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 so it's not hard to imagine the negative stigma that Moabite women had to carry in the city of Bethlehem. So taking on a Moabite woman, for, for even Boaz, right? Taking on a Moabite woman would probably have been at least socially awkward, if not worse. There was a real risk of becoming a social outcast. I mean, the elders and the people, what will they say if a worthy man like Boaz went after a Moabite woman? So verse 1, Naomi tells Ruth, go wash, anoint yourself, 
and put on your cloak for I want to find your place to rest. I want to find your home. You know, there, had been, there have been many differing uh, ideas or commentary about what Naomi is up t- attempting to do in, in chapter 3. Like many commentaries have differing ideas about what is Naomi really trying to do, right? Uh, one thing for sure, Naomi isn't simply instructing her daughter-in-law to make herself attractive. This, this language about wash yourself anoint and put on your cloak in the Old Testament. It is a very common language for indicating a new season. So really, when Naomi tells Ruth her instruction in verse 1, she isn't simply telling Ruth to make herself attractive for Boaz. Probably that's part of that. But more importantly, it's about preparing her for a new season. Ever since the death of her husband, Ruth has been in season of mourning. Uh, season of survival, season of just to get by another day. But Naomi's instruction in verse 1 signals a new season, a new beginning. So go and wash and change your morning garments and put on new clothes means new season is coming. Second Samuel 12, 20, King David did the same thing. He mourned the death of his son, but as soon as the son died... He got up, anointed himself, changed his clothes, indicating again, God made a decision, and this is a new season. And many other Old Testament passages use this combination, go wash, anoint yourself, put on new clothes, again, to indicate a new season. And a new season has arrived for Ruth and Naomi. There's a really intentional, already in chapter 2, things were shifting. But in chapter 3, more dramatic things will happen for Ruth and Naomi. Season of mourning has given way to season of true restoration and provision. And whenever I sit down with people in our congregation or a friend who's going through a hard, difficult season, COVID, I mean, last three years, my goodness, Every other person I sat down with has something really traumatic, that someone they've lost, something they've experienced, rejection, being canceled. I mean, you know, you, you name it, people have gone through hard things, a bankruptcy, failed marriage, a loss of someone they love. And, and, and I think I feel helpless often when I sit with them. I, I wish I could offer them something better than, than just sitting. And at the end of these conversations, one thing I... I the one encouragement I think I can give and I have given throughout my time of pastoral counseling is to remind whoever is going through that tough, difficult, depressing season that scripturally there's a season for everything. Ecclesiastes, uh, some of you guys might be so confused, but what is this book about? I was like that for a long time. I still am, but Ecclesiastes does a wonderful job of speaking about seasons of life. Everyone say seasons. So Ecclesiastes chapter 3, this is the passage. Um, in chapter 3, the teacher, the Koheleth, the, the wise person at the end of his life reflects back. Some people think it's Solomon. Others argue it's someone else. And he says, for everything, there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to plug up what is planted. And there's a list, a long list of different matters that a human experiences under 
the Son. And really, at the end of this list, the author says this in verse 11. He says, for God has made everything beautiful in its time. God is God of seasons, and God has a purpose for these seasons. And verse 13, so he says, don't try to win life. Don't try to be successful in life in that sense, but really enjoy, take pleasure, drink, laugh. Spend time with your friends. Because verse 13 says, this is, life is God's gift to men. I love what one commentator says about this passage, and I'll quote, and it's on the screen as well. Uh, It's a Tyndale commentary. The commentator says, this passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 stresses human inadequacy under God's disposal of the epochs of life. Other word for seasons of life. Events and characteristic seasons of time are imposed upon men. If we're really honest, that's what life is. God imposing seasons in our lives. No one chooses a time to weep unless you're an actor or an actress. Equally, the events of life that come our way undermine our confidence that our endeavors will have any permanence. Permanence. We, can, we cannot stand outside the events of life and view from the beginning to the end. No, none of us can do this. And all this puts mankind in his place, far from being master of his fate and the captain of his soul. Friends, life, I, I, I feel like this has been a repeating theme maybe last six months. Life cannot be controlled or it's not even meant to be won. It is not a game to, to level up and, 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 and get to that trophy. In every way, whatever the Ecclesiastes teaches us is that life is really a gift. Gift from the real master. We're not the masters of our lives. We're not the captain of our souls. But there is a master and, and the gift that he gives us is life itself. All the seasons, the good, the bad, and the ugly, the joys and, 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 and the depressing seasons, they are in, in their ways God's gift to us. So, so really, the author, the teacher, the Koheleth in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 suggests, verse 12, there's nothing better for humanity to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Translation, stop worrying about things we cannot control. I do that all the time. Anyone else? Are you worried now as you're sitting here thinking about things that you cannot control? His advice is be joyful. Be and, and, and be good to each other. For, for as long as God keeps us on this side of eternity, that is really our call. And, so, and perhaps you love your current season right now. Maybe you are having a fantastic season of life. Kids are grown up. Diapers are done. Right? You could get away for a few days and, and your spouse will not get upset. Or maybe you're, you're single in the city and you're successful in your career. You're making good money. You're healthy. You feel good. Masks are off next week. Everyone's happier, maybe. And, and you love many things that you get to experience, enjoy. 
And there are others of us, you are in a hard, difficult, painful season. And you cannot wait to get out of this season. You cannot wait for God to take you to another season. And most of us are probably somewhere between those two, two, two ways of life. You know, it's not too great. It's not too bad. The good things that we like, the things that could be different. But no matter how we feel today, how we feel about our current stage of life, here's a reminder that, that, that not only the book of Ruth, but Ecclesiastes gives us one. God has purpose, and in time, he will make everything beautiful. Amen? Two, only one person said amen, all right? Two, you will not always be in this season forever. Whatever season you're in, even your amazing season, you're, 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 you're doing great, you're loving life, it's not going to be forever. You're doing terrible, you hate life, it's not going to be forever. You're somewhere in between, it's not going to be forever. So remember, God is God of seasons. And, and just like an experienced farmer, I, we cannot determine our seasons. We think we can, right? With our technology, with our might, with our ambition, we think we can. But truth is we cannot. But what, one thing we can do is we can discern what season we are in. And, 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 and submit just like Ruth and Naomi in the story. Submit to what God is already doing instead of trying to create your own path. So back to the story, Naomi and Ruth sense that new season has arrived for them. They could sense both of them. They've already perceived the Lord's kindness and the direction. Things have begun to, you know, there's confidence that God's going to bless their effort. And there's an important principle. When we see Ruth and Naomi and the way they're moving in chapter 3, there's an important principle that I think we can glean from here. Properly understood, a belief in God's sovereignty, that God is holding all things together, that God is in control of all things, does not lead us to fatalism or passivity. Instead, quite the contrary, it provides, right? If we truly believe that God is sovereign, it will not make us passive, but it would actually provide us hope and the confidence to move forward in faith. So friends, if you truly believe in the sovereign nature of God, and I think we do, we confess. What do we believe in? We confess as Apostles' Creed. We, we confess the sovereignty of God. We sing these songs. Then that ought to continue to move us in the direction of faith and not fear. Move us into action and not inaction. And that's what we see. In Ruth and Naomi. So verse 5, Ruth replies to her mother-in-law, all that you say I will do, right? I'm going to do it. And this is not an easy decision. It sounds easy because Ruth doesn't protest. Ruth doesn't say I have a different idea. Ruth says I'm going to do it. But this is not easy. Ruth is putting both her reputation and her safety in danger. Boaz had already told Ruth not to glean in other men's field because something terrible might happen to her during the day. Naomi's telling her daughter-in-law at night, go to this man alone. She's risking a lot to do this. Yet Ruth trusts and surrenders, not only to Naomi, but already she could sense that God is 
moving in, in, this, in this. Trust and surrender is the theme for the rest of the chapter. So verse 6, Ruth does everything that Naomi had instructed her to do. She goes out to the threshing floor. Every landowner, once all the crops were collected, they would be involved in the process of winnowing barley. There was only one threshing floor in the town, right, that everyone shared. So it's pretty simple to know where Boaz would be that night. But again, Naomi's instruction in this passage are, at best, it's really ambiguous, really hard to really figure out what is Naomi really trying to do. Even more so in the original language, if you read this passage in Hebrew, every word in verse 4 is capable of being more than one meaning. Did Naomi really intend for Ruth to seduce Boaz? Especially because the idea of uncovering his feet has a very strong sexual connotation in the first century Middle Eastern culture. Others argue what's instructed to Ruth is a nice balance between audacity and restraint, right? The ball is now, now that Ruth has done this, the ball is clearly on Boaz's court, in Boaz's court. Leaving no doubt what is being asked of him while without forcing his hand by some sense of entrapment, right? Ruth is not saying, you have to marry me, but Ruth is nice balance, but we will never know. I mean, like different commentaries have different ideas about what Naomi meant. But I don't think that's the most important thing for us to uncover in this passage. I think what's more important is to see this theme that continues to come up in this chapter 3. This idea of trust and surrender. Trust and surrender. The imagery of laying at someone else's feet. Naomi tells Ruth, go lay, uncover his feet, lay by his feet. Laying down at someone else's feet always, every time it shows up in, in Scripture, signifies a sense, a complete sense of trust and surrender. Trust and surrender. Ruth is a foreign woman, a widow without any representation or protection. And this could have, again, gone very, very not good for her. There was huge unknowns, yet again, Ruth displays complete trust by putting into action all that her mother had asked her to do. Verse 8, Boaz wakes up. I mean, imagine being Boaz. Went to sleep, had some drink, you know, excited about, you know, the process and, and the harvest. He goes to sleep alone and wakes up in the middle of the night in total shock. He's like, what the heck happened? I, woke, I went to sleep alone. There's a woman by my feet. Verse 9, he is not only shocked, but he wants to know who this woman is. And so he says, who, who are you? And Ruth says, I'm Ruth, the Moabite. Um, and, and Ruth just comes out with it in verse 9. Ruth says, and, and Boaz, even, even before Boaz asks, what are you doing here? What's going on? Ruth says, verse 9, spread your wings over me. You are a redeemer. Ruth makes her intentions clear. In fact, in chapter 2, during their first encounter, when they met in Boaz's field in, in the first time, this was Boaz's prayer, wasn't it? 
The prayer that Boaz prayed over Ruth was that, the, that I've heard what you've done for your mother-in-law, how you have left home, left your God, and followed her here. The, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. A full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth is simply telling Boaz, hey, you pray this for me, you are the answer to this prayer. Under your wings, God's going to provide provision for me. Brilliant. Ruth is brilliant, right? Like You can't say anything to that. Because you prayed this, you're the provision. You're the redeemer. You're part of the family. You're the worthy man. There's no one else. A quick note about the word redeemer. Kinsman, redeemer. Next week, we'll probably uh, go more deep into the kinsman, redeemer. But really, this idea about kinsman, redeemer... This role originally comes out of the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, part of the law. By definition, kinsman redeemer is a Hebrew term. This was someone who redeemed what was lost. This could be someone's property, their freedom, or even a, name, a family name. The kinsman was a rescuer, a restorer, someone who, who set things straight. And this was not a passive obligation in any means, by any means, nor was it something that should be entered into lightly. It was a big deal to be a kinsman redeemer. And under certain circumstances, the kinsman redeemer would be obligated to marry his own brother's wife. Widow, his own brother's widow, not his brother's wife. When, when the brother passes, marry his brother's widow, right? In order to raise up the family, for, for his dead brother, a family that, that all the property would be under him now and he would, be, he would oversee it, make sure it flourishes under him. And really, this was God's way of making sure the less fortunate would be taken care of in case something like this would happen, a widow or, and, and someone who lost a father or lost a husband. And, and again, Ruth displays unbelievable faith here. No woman in their culture would ever dare to ask a man for his hand in marriage. Like even now, we, like some of you guys are old-fashioned. Even now, you guys are like, no, you can't ask. You, you advise your female friends, no, you can't ask, ask the guy. You got to wait for him, right? I've heard this. I'm like, wow, like 19th century right now, okay? Um, but, but in their context, this was, I mean, this never happened. And, and a man and woman would never have a conversation. It would be man going to the family. There would be this whole process. She's younger. She's foreigner. She's got nothing in the eyes of the world. Yet Ruth, sensing that God may be bringing this man Boaz for her family and Naomi, she will not allow her fears and worries to get the best of her. I mean, this is bold faith. So verse 10 and 11, Boaz reassures her. Like Boaz is like, girl, feelings are mutual. Yeah, I'm, I'm there, right? Boaz reassures her. He, he thanks her. I don't know how old this man is, but he thanks her. You didn't go after younger men, right? Rich or poor. Yet he says in verse 12, this is the bomb in this story. This is something Ruth and Naomi didn't think about. And only Boaz knew. In verse 12, he says, there's another, another man. There's another man in the story, another redeemer in the family that is nearer than himself. There was an order of, you know, 
if you lost, right, there is an order of who will be the closest redeemer. And only Boaz realized there was another guy. Joshmo, he was in the way. And perhaps that's, perhaps that's the reason why Boaz has waited. He didn't know what to do. He didn't want to play this lightly. He wanted to make sure because he definitely felt something for Ruth and knew that he could provide but there was another man. So verse 13, Boaz now is, has confidence. This is tomorrow. I'll go and settle this matter. And if that means that man redeems you, good. Let him. But if he doesn't, then as long as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Not a very romantic comment towards a woman who is, you know, revealing her heart. Like, if he redeems you, great. No. Um, Yet when you think about what Boaz is saying here, what he's saying is also trust and surrender. These words are also words of trust and surrender. See, Boaz, in response to Ruth's trust and surrender of Yahweh and what he's doing, Boaz will also place his trust and surrender his plans to God and he will not take matters into his own hands. Throughout the scripture, many kings, many leaders, men and women of the, of the scripture, they get in trouble. Why? Because they try to take matters into their own hands. Whether it's Sarah with, with having children, whether it's David with Bathsheba, list is long. When people, Saul, King Saul, giving an offering without waiting for Samuel. I mean, throughout the scripture, we see people get in trouble when they take matters into their own hands instead of waiting on God. But Boaz stands out as a shining example of someone who will not do that. Especially in the context of the story. Remember, the story is taking place during the time of Judges when everybody did what? Everybody did <laughs> I said this like last three weeks. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes, right? Like that was the idea of judges. No king, no, no godly leader. And especially when, when, while everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes, Boaz says, no, I'm not going to do that. No matter how much I want I to want marry, no matter how much I want this to happen, I'm going to honor God's structure. I'm going to honor God's law. I'm going to honor the process. And again, Boaz's response to Ruth here stands as a wonderful example of someone whose heart is fully committed to God in every way. And 2 Chronicles 16.9, right? Maybe you've heard this passage before. God is always searching out people whose heart is fully committed to him. That's the story throughout the kings and the failures of biblical characters because their hearts were divided. Israelites, their hearts were divided. Moses, their hearts were divided. And again, 2 Chronicles 69 says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those who are, who are, who are what? What does it say? Who are immensely talented? That's what we do. Or those who are naturally gifted? Or those who are greatly successful? No, none of those things. He is always searching out for people whose heart is fully committed to him. 
This is our problem, though. Because I want to stand here in my nice suit, not very nice, but the bus suit, and tell you, I am always committed. As your pastor, I am always committed. My heart is always committed to what God desires. I would like to tell you that I never doubt God's faithfulness, that I never struggle. Last three years doing church in COVID, that I never questioned God. I would like to say that, but you know and I know that I'm a fraud when I say that. None of us can truly ever say our hearts are always fully committed to God. If you think that, excuse me, but I think you might be a little delusional. Our hearts are fickle at best. Too often when push comes to shove, I know for me, I prefer my timing versus God's. My purpose versus what he desires. My will versus his. My rules versus the way he has construct life. That's the human problem. That's been our predicament. From the moment Adam and Eve took the, the one fruit God said, stay away from. Genesis 3. This is why. Right? The, the, None of us can be like Boaz. That's not the point of Ruth chapter 3, be like Boaz. No, because none of us can. The point is Boaz stands as this example of redeemer that you and I need. We all need a redeemer just like Ruth and Naomi. We are not Boaz of the story. We are like Ruth and Naomi. Like Naomi, happy when things are going well, when things are tough. Mad, upset, bitter, angry, want to walk out of this relationship. And this is why Jesus answered the call as our kinsman redeemer. See, according to Old Testament scripture, there are four major requirements that had to be met. If you were to be the kinsman redeemer, there are four requirements. Requirement one, you had to be kin. You have to be from the same family. Requirement two, you have to be willing. We'll see that next week. That man will not be willing. Boaz is willing. Three, you have to be able to redeem. You can't simply be willing. You have to be able to actually pay the check. You have to be able to pay. And the fourth, you have to pay in full price. There was no such thing as partial redemption. When it came to being a kinsman redeemer, it was truly an all or nothing proposition. And friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news according to Ruth chapter 3 that Jesus Christ, our redeemer, became one of us. The reason why Jesus became a man is because he is God, Emmanuel. He is with us. He knows. He knows our struggle. And he came to rescue humanity. Jesus willingly took on our failures, your failures and mine, and made a payment with his own life. He not only was willing, but he, he, he paid for it with his life. And it's only through his life and death, we who were fickle at best can begin to live lives that are wholeheartedly committed to God. Amen? Without Jesus, we're all frauds. What we're doing makes no sense. Outside people be like, why, why are you singing these songs? Why are you meeting? Why do you gather? 
Right? Without Jesus, all of this makes no sense. And really, that's the lesson of Ruth 3. That you see Boaz for Naomi and Ruth? Well, Christ is the greater kinsman redeemer for you and I. So verse 13, they lay there together, Ruth and Boaz, awkward, uncomfortable, but they still need to because other people might be around. Until the next morning, early morning, Ruth gets up to return home. And before she heads out, Boaz sends six measures of barley. That's like 60 pounds, more than last time. As a gift that speaks of his commitment to do what he said he's going to do. And really the chapter comes to an end. Chapter 3 comes to an end in verse 18 with Naomi saying this. Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens for Boaz. For the man will not rest until the matter, the matter is settled today. And next week we'll find out what happens. But before we get to 4, the chapter 3 Boaz's picture of, 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 of a small glimpse of Christ. And again, none of us, without Boaz, without Christ, we cannot pursue God. We cannot come here and sing and gather and worship. Amen? Let me, let me pray for us, and then we'll share in the time of communion together. I invite Brother Jay to help us with that. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful uh, structure you've created uh, from the beginning of time and, and, and this, this concept of kinsman redeemer, Lord, it seems so foreign to us until we realize uh, our needs, our brokenness. Even those of us that are doing amazing in our lives, we know at best our hearts are fickle towards you. We know at best we're not good enough to be able to earn our own way of salvation, our own way of coming to you. But there's freedom in recognizing that, Lord, because now we now know that it's only through you, your life, your death, your righteousness, you becoming curse, you becoming sin, the one who did not know sin becoming sin for us. That is what saves us, that is what delivers us. So would you restore us once again today? Uh, Lord, all of us are in different places in life, different seasons of life. Um, and it's, some of us are excited about our current chapter of life. Some of us are dreading. Some of us are somewhere in between. But Lord, would you teach once again, teach us once again that we're not masters. We're not the captain of our own soul. There's only one master and it's you. And we ask, continue to guide us, continue to lead us, and continue to make everything beautiful in your time according to your purpose. Just let me pray. Amen.